Good evening and welcome to a very spooky episode of The Drama Club. On this week's episode, we talk about Selena Gomez versus the Beliebers, and then May tells the story of the curse of the cast of Poltergeist. Stay tuned. What up, fam? What up, fam? Feels good, right? Feels good, right? <laughs> yeah, I know it, dude. I know it, dude. And without further ado, we broadcast a live from CA to M. Oh, have you seen that meme of Paul Rudd going viral? Oh, yeah. Where he's like, look at us. <laughs> yeah. Who would have thought? <laughs> I just think that's me and you. <laughs> Not me. Not me. Like, in every meme of those, it's like, I think of me and you. It's like, after you're like super hungover and like you actually made it to brunch and it's yeah. like look at us <laughs> who would have thought and then i saw one that was like you and your best friend 10 years after college after all the crazy shit you did together <laughs> i saw one that was like uh the only ones i've seen are kind of like dirty there was one this oh. isn't this isn't dirty but this is one where it was like you and your english teacher when you're dating after you graduate and it's like look at us <laughs> oh my god <laughs> Dude, there was a teacher in my high school who like dated a or our high school who dated mm-hmm. a student. Do you remember that? Uh yeah, I remember it coming out like uh maybe like 5 years ago or something. No, more. Yeah. More at this point, but uh, yeah. there was an arrest made, right? Oh, I don't know about that. There I remember like being in high school and like her getting fired. Oh. Oh, no, I'm thinking of something else because I remember okay. this when my ex-boyfriend's like little sister was going or something and it was like oh, oh wow. give us all the tea about like oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she didn't know that all the tea right because little kids yeah. don't be paying enough attention mm-hmm. i hate that <laughs> what's the point of having little fucking kids, kids? they're not gonna give you the treat <laughs> the tea what's the tea look at us <laughs> <laughs> what up hong kong <laughs> no big deal what up hong kong mention you shout out to hong kong <laughs> no for real though so <laughs> so hong kong withdrew the extradition bill that was what sparked the original protests Woo. so that was all over the news this week that's a victory for for the hong kong protesters yeah absolutely so goes to show guys <laughs> you could get it we could do we can make change <laughs> i did look at us i did see that uh vice president pence was he went on like a long tirade a rant about the nba and he was like see you guys want to stand up basically what we were saying like you guys want to yeah. stand up for certain things and don't want to stand up for like the people i of did hong see kong. that too yeah, that was awesome. And I was kind of like, oh, like, I agree with you, but it makes me uncomfortable that I, I agree with you, Mike Pence. <laughs> I like the thing you tweeted about Shaq, too. Oh, yeah. Shaq totally was like, it basically said everything that we said, which was like, you guys need to put your values above your fucking bag. In conclusion, we were right. <laughs> <laughs> also, shout out to fucking Shaq, who... Uh, I stand. I've always stand. And also, if you are ever in the Glendale area, I just noticed <laughs> across the street from the Americana, he's opening like a chicken, a chicken restaurant. It's called like Ooh. it's called like Shack Shack or some shit. Ooh. Like Shack's Chicken Shack. 
And I see that thing that's on the window or, you know, like when they're applying for a uh, liquor license. So, oh, so it's going to be liquor and chicken. Guess where I'm going to be at when that shit opens. Shout out to you, Shaq. <laughs> I like Shaq also. I also like Shaq. I saw that uh, your girl, Scotty Pippen's wife, what's her name? Larsa Pippen? Larsa. Why is she my girl? <laughs> <laughs> you said you wanted to do an episode on her or something. Yeah, because I think she has drama, but not because she's my girl. Oh, she was in the news. Why? What'd she do? She has some drama. I don't know what Of it was. course she does. I told you, dude. Remember they filed for divorce and then withdrew? Yeah. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's something going on there. Yeah, I don't know what the drama was, but it was like, I think she was... It, it, it's something to do with her dating life. Oh, but she's married still to Scotty? She is? Yeah, they're married. Still? Huh. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, there's definitely something there. <laughs> so we're talking about her cheating life. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Seriously. Ooh. Her side piece. Okay. Shout, out, shout out to Sinead O'Connor. <laughs> hey, sh- shout out to the side pieces at Popeye's. <laughs> Okay, so the big drama that happened this week is that Selena Gomez dropped a new song. Which I did not realize that Selena Gomez only had one album. I didn't either. And I didn't realize it had been so long. Yes. And I did not realize it had been so successful. (laughs) Oh, her album? Yes. Yeah. Apparently, she's like on the list of the top selling women of all time or some shit what yes those lists are fucking bullshit what's her fucking bop i don't even know the one bop i know isn't on her solo album what which one the one it's like selena gomez and the something hmm. she got a side oh a side i project? love you like a love song oh, baby that's a fucking bop i love you like a love song that's not baby. that's not a solo song it's not a solo. It's when she was in this little band called Selena oh. Gomez in the scene. That shit's from 2011. Yo. That's crazy. She also actually has this other song that I like that's like, uh, I want to be good for you. Good uh, for you. I don't like that song. Uh-uh. I don't like that video. Either. It's weird. It's Yeah, it's weird, but I do like that song. And <laughs> there's a lot of good parodies of that video. And I do like the song Bad Liar. I don't know that one. Oh, that's a fucking bop. It's okay. like a okay, it has okay. like a talking head sample in it. It's fucking good. Oh wow, okay. So she dropped this new ballad called Lose You to Love Me and obviously immediately everybody speculated that this is about her and the end of her on again off again long-term relationship with the Beebs, the one and only <laughs> Justin Belieber and the fact that he is now married to Haley. This is not a song that I would ordinarily have listened to. Me either, but I did because... Because of the podcast? <laughs> yeah, because of the drama and because, you know, I was like, is it about him? That's crazy to be putting it all out there, but I mean... Well, I was going to say, I also did not end up listening to it, but I listened to <laughs> just like the highlights of it and I read like the lyrics and stuff and I was like, girl, that's about him. Yeah, of course it is. I don't think she's denying that it's about him. She went out of her way to not deny that it was about him. But she also went out of her way to deny that it was about the weekend. Right. <laughs> Which is funny. <laughs> I thought that shit was hilarious. Uh, that is hilarious. <laughs> so the lyrics that everybody's saying are like clearly about the beebs. Mm-hmm. Let me find it. Oh, okay. So the song says, in two months, you replaced us like it was easy. Which Oof. is fucking crazy. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> 
And she says, I gave my all and they all know it. You turned me down and now it's showing. In two months, you replaced us like it was easy. You made me think I deserved it and to think of healing. Actually, it's like so real vulnerable. Does she, so does she write her own music? Because this is like, you know. She co-wrote that song. Okay. Yeah. Because it, it's almost weird. I, I, always, I thought about this also when Ariana dropped um, Thank You Next. Oh, yeah, because cool. I was like, that's real personal. And I never imagined that she really would have written her songs. But I'm like, right, right, right. you either really wrote this or like you had to let someone all up in your business yeah. <laughs> to write this shit. So I'm wondering, like, if uh, what's the deal with Selena? She did the same thing. Yeah. So then right after the song dropped, Haley, I mean, it went viral on Twitter and everybody yeah. was speculating. Obviously, this is about her and Biebs. Right. Then Haley Baldwin Bieber posted mm-hmm. a screenshot of herself listening to this song by Summer Walker called I'll Kill You. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody was like, bitch. Yeah. I don't. And then she tried to, she, she commented on, I think it was like on Just Jared or something and said like, yeah, Just Jared. You guys are trying to make something out of nothing. Like this fucking Yeah. Stupid. She's like, stop. Yeah. This isn't a response or whatever. It's just bullshit. But girl, but, you knew what you were doing. That is my, that's one of my biggest pet peeves. Like that. Me too. That bullshit. I respect you more to just be like, yeah, I did it. And what? Yeah. I don't like like the, like turning it back. Right. And shit. Like this has nothing to do. Then what, then what the fuck does it have to do with this fucking stupid? You look dumb. She's not stupid. She knew that yeah. that was going to be the reaction of everybody, you know? Yeah. This is like when Constance Wu was like, no, I did not. Oh, yeah, that was so funny. <laughs> I did not mean that fuck you to the show I'm on about the show that I'm on. <laughs> yeah. So Selena, I think she responded. Yeah. She put a note. She posted up a fucking notes app thing mm-hmm. to her Instagram. And she's saying like she's thanking Jesus and everybody about where she's at <laughs> thank you um, jesus and everybody thank you jesus thank you jesus and everybody <laughs> everyone was talking about how horny it made her sound for jesus yeah it is like super it, weird it's, it's yeah it's real horny for jesus i mean he's yeah, hot so- <laughs> <laughs> and she says see uh the enemies are trying to tear me down and it's not gonna happen mm. not today Ooh. Yo, I would pay to watch that fucking fight between Selena and Hailey Bieber. Hailey Bieber's tall as shit. I know. Were they? But Selena's Latina. And her <laughs> name is Selena. So you never know. You never Were know. Were they homies? Like, you know, obviously before this situation ever? No, I don't think so. Uh, I'm sure, like, they knew each other, but. Yeah. Yeah, they were never, like, homie homies. Huh. And then Selena also did issue a statement saying that she doesn't want her fans to tear wi- other women apart. She doesn't want to see women being torn apart. Okay, I like that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, then she dropped another song. Yeah, she just dropped another song, right? I didn't know about that one. That, I, I haven't heard it. I did listen to just, or I saw like the little clip of the music video. She's dancing and stuff. I didn't know she was a dancing type pop star. Ooh, but either. But I, I will actually listen to that song because that one is more my speed. That ballad, I was kind of like not feeling it. Yeah, I don't like That's why I don't like that one song. Good for you? Yeah, that song just the whole premise of that song i don't like either i i like that song because it's kind of like sexy yeah but in like a the kind of girl that calls her man king way Mm, yeah 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 true (laughs) remember that madman when pete goes to a brothel and the girl is trying to figure out like what he's into and she's like she's kind of like 
trying out different things and she, finally she's like you're my king and he's like bingo <laughs> yeah <laughs> is that the one where he sees his dad mm-hmm. <laughs> his stepdad mm-hmm. right yeah or no his dad no he sees his wife's dad i think it yeah was. his his that's his father there you go fuck man <laughs> all right hello everyone my name is stephanie and hi my name is may and this is the drama club Thank you for listening. This is a podcast all about celebrity scandals, gossip, drama, pop, pop. culture scandals. <laughs> I was going to say feuds between pop figures. Your girl and your ex-girl <laughs> fighting on the gram. Memes. Gram fights. <laughs> yeah, memes. I love memes. I love meme. All right. So today is, or like when this is out, it's going to be what? Thir- it's going to be, it's going to be halloween so this week you might have heard that i wanted to do something spooky for halloween so i decided to do a curse so i love a curse (laughs) and it's a good one so i love halloween prepare to hear about the curse of the movie poltergeist oh my god i love this one man yeah this curse is so good that there's an e-true hollywood story about it yeah which i remember watching as a kid and i searched all over for it but i couldn't find it anywhere in the research for this i'm so disappointed yeah and now it's like have you seen any of the new true hollywood stories i watched part of a women in hip-hop one Oh, how is it? I haven't seen it's like women rappers i literally that's funny that you say that because i literally today saw that one for like 20 minutes it was okay all right yeah, it kind of it was cool because they had a lot of people because it was a lot of people involved in that right. one, but it wasn't like anything too spicy. Well, it it sucks because now when I look up true Hollywood stories, like they those keep popping up, and I'm like, no, oh, I'm not talking yeah. about that. Don't nobody want to watch those. <laughs> okay, D- when okay, sorry. Do you remember when like the internet? No, no, no. <laughs> when YouTube like first came out, mm-hmm. you could like watch all these like. Remember, like, early, early internet? Like, when we were kids? What was that one website that was awful? Like, you could see, like, horrible shit on it. Rotten? Yeah. Yeah. Early YouTube, you could see, like, rotten videos still. And I remember there were always, like, paranormal and, like, poltergeist ones. Yeah. Is Rotten.com, does it still exist? Like, can I still go to Rotten.com? No, dude. That was so bad. Yeah. I mean, like, people didn't think to regulate shit like that. We were so little. (laughs) Well, that shit's still not regulated. Like, you no, still, I know, but I mean, it's it's been banished more. to even deeper parts of the internet now. Seriously, but twelve year old me was living like I know, sort of, you like, could watching through my through my fingers. <laughs> I know, like the most horrid shit, right? Yeah. Ooh, gross. Okay, so anyway, since the true Hollywood story for this doesn't exist anymore, I had to rely on all the Wikipedia's and the website the Thirteenth Floor TV. First of all, if you guys are listening to this during Halloween week, there is a 78% chance that I'm somewhere listening to my favorite song, The Monster Mash, literally right now. So rest assured that I'm currently... I was going to FaceTime you the other day because Mateo said he doesn't like The Monster Mash. What? I was like, I'm going to FaceTime me because this is her favorite song. He was like, please don't. <laughs> Mateo's not allowed to listen to this podcast anymore then. I'm bad issue. you. He's, a, he's on probation. You're telling me a monster made this match? <laughs> So anyway, rest assured that I'm currently getting my whole last life. Honorable mention to Werewolf Bar Mitzvah, which I also love. Hey, that's a bop right there. (laughs) Anyway, I'm going to do this episode in order of increasing spookiness. 
But first, I'm going to tell you about the movie Poltergeist in case you haven't seen it. I won't spoil it, so don't worry about that in case you still want to watch it. Poltergeist was a big hit movie from 1982, written and produced by Steven Spielberg. Spielberg wrote the movie as a sequel to his blockbuster sci-fi alien flick from five years before, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That's a bop right yeah, there. Yeah, that shit is a bop. That's bet, a fucking bop. I bet if you watched that, like, back in the day, it must have been, like... So scary. Scary and, like, just... That's gotta be one of the top UFO movies. Oh, I'm more of an alien kind of girl. Well, alien, too. I'm saying, like, but yeah. some of the best. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I just like the ones where the uh, where the effects are, like, puppets and practical more than, like, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Like the special effects type shit. Alien is so scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I... Those are so good. Did you did you ever go to this thing at Disneyland that was like an alien experience where like mm-hmm. it was like a 4D type thing? Like they would the, the alien would escape and then you would hear it stomping around behind you. And then no. like they would say, oh, he's spewing guts or something. And then they would splash water on you. Oh, my God. How cool. Was, no, I never went to that. It was real scary. It was That's dope. Yeah, it was real cool. Anyway, so. uh he so Spielberg, because he was at the time knee deep in the production of his other ginormous monster of a hit film E.T. the extraterrestrial, his contract didn't allow him to direct another movie until E.T. was in the can. So he contracted a director named Toby Hooper, who had written and directed the hugely successful and massively influential horror classic The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Okay, okay. I actually never saw that movie until. I don't know, maybe like a couple years ago, I could see like why it really shook people. And also I can see where literally every movie, horror movie made after that has taken something from that movie. It's really good, I think. Yeah, I watched that one with my mom like last summer. Yeah, it's good, huh? Yeah, it's really super good. So Toby was a horror guy through and through, not really a sci-fi dude. So he suggested to Spielberg that they sort of retool the script to make it about ghosts instead of aliens. And so they collabed to outline the story, which would become Poltergeist. There's actually a lot of drama about Toby and Spielberg that I didn't know about. That has nothing. It has nothing to do with the curse, but it's super interesting. So I'm going to talk about it in a little bit because, you know, first and foremost, we the drama club, not the curse club. Feel me? (laughs) Yeah. All right. But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about the plot of the movie. The movie is about a family of white people named the Freelings. We've got dad played by Craig T. Nelson. Mom, played by Joe Beth Williams. Oldest daughter, Dana, played by Dominique Dunn. Middle son, Robbie, played by Oliver Robbins. And Carol Ann, played by six-year-old actress Heather O'Rourke. The Freelings live in a suburban community in Orange County called Cuesta Verde. One night, crazy shit starts happening after their TV screen mysteriously turns to static. And little baby Carol Ann is transfixed by it as a white hand pops out of the screen and Carol Ann turns to utter her famous line, they're here. Oh my God. No, man. I'm scared. I'm by myself. I watched it. I watched it last night. And even though you did, yeah, even though I like, I've, I've seen it obviously like years ago and I had already, I haven't seen it in forever. I, yeah. Since I was a kid, I think. Yeah. And I had already written this when the white hand popped out of the screen. I like jumped a little bit. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so they're here. It was put on the American Film Institute's list of greatest movie quotes. And uh, yeah, so that's like the most famous line from the movie. For sure. Long story short, their house is haunted, bruh. But (laughs) (laughs) but as, as it turns out, maybe 
the movie is haunted too. Bum bum bum. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so back to the Spielberg Toby drama. If you watch the trailer for the movie, Steven Spielberg's name is all over it. This movie dropped within one week of E.T. Fuck. <laughs> and Damn, that's crazy. It's so crazy. Yeah. And this summer was called the Spielberg Summer, which is, yeah. is different from Hot Girl Summer. Oh, it is? How? <laughs> <laughs> Spookier. <laughs> but... Can you imagine how good Spielberg must have felt that fucking summer? Oh, show? yeah. That fool stopped walking around like his shit don't yeah. stink. <laughs> it's probably so annoying at that time. <laughs> so anyway, all this didn't sit well with the Directors Guild of America, which had to open an investigation to make sure that Toby got his proper credit. Oh, good. This made me think of a lot about how uh, politicians like to talk about the quote unquote Hollywood elite, but they forget that like 90% of Hollywood is made up of like blue collar union workers and even like the high level people, like the directors are part of unions like the DGA. Right, right, right. Anyway, so the DGA was like, hold up. Who directed this fucking movie? The studio ended up having to pay a fine for downplaying Toby's contributions. And Spielberg wrote Toby an open letter in The Hollywood Reporter the week after the movie dropped, gassing him up and thanking him for doing such a great job directing the movie. But plot twist, over the years, cast and crew have been at odds about who really directed the movie. Wow. Spielberg was on set every day except for three. And Toby would set up every shot and then Spielberg would come right behind him and like tweak them. Actress Zelda Rubenstein, who plays an important and memorable role as a medium in the film, says that it was Spielberg who directed her every day that she worked on the film. And she seems to imply that Toby was high the whole time. Ooh. But this is disputed by certain other fellow cast members. Apparently, the whole project was rough for Toby because Spielberg was being so hands-on. Toby would okay something, be ready to shoot it, but Spielberg would want something different, and he had the final say. So makeup, special effects, or whatever, all had to go through Spielberg. So this has kind of been a long-running controversy that continues to this day about the film. And if you watch it, it very much has the look and feel of an 80s Spielberg movie. So, right, right, right. so I don't know. I don't know what to think. Yeah. Anyway, now back to the curse. It turns out that in a now famous scene in which the mom, Jo Beth Williams, is surrounded by skeletons in the family swimming pool, the skeletons they used were real skeletons. No. <laughs> because fake skeletons just weren't a thing back then. So <gasps> so they just went to whoever supplied the coroner? No, not the coroner, but like whoever oh. the company was that supplied the skeletons to like medical schools. And they're like, <gasps> all right, we're going to need like three dozen skeletons. And they're like, we got you. Wow. Anyway, so maybe this- that seems too easy <laughs> <Right>? to <laughs> get skeletons like harder. that. Yeah. But why? It's weird that you have Spielberg, who's like this master director who loves all this bullshit, who wasn't like, oh, let's get industrial light and magic to fucking make us a skeleton. Like, well, yeah, let's fucking make skeletons. Yeah, it's weird that yeah. he was like, nah, it's good. Go get those fucking real skeletons. Yeah, that's fucking scary. Anyway, so so maybe this is the origin of the angry spirits that cursed the film. Ooh. I, I think I'm going to try to find like... Sounds and stuff for this yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not going to listen to it. I'm going to be scared. Joe Beth says that she would come home every night from the shoot to find that someone or something... 
was tilting all of the photos in her home. I fucking hate you. I hate myself because I am low-key like tense in, the, in my back. I gotta take CBD. You should be like listening to this in the dark and shit. Yeah, for sure, for sure. All right, so so she wondered if maybe something was trying to tell her, like uh, send her a message about not working on this movie. Ooh. Oliver Robbins, our middle child, was almost strangled to death by a malfunctioning mechanical clown prop that was used in the film. That's some shit right there. <laughs> That's scary. The crew saw that the clown was strangling him, which it was like kind of like supposed to do, but they just thought that Oliver was just really selling it. Like, they, they were, oh my god, they were looking at this little kid. They were like, "Damn, he's a good actor." <laughs> Damn, that's scary. Isn't that like low key what happened to Brandon Lee? Like, first, it took oh, yeah. everybody a second because they were like, "Wow, yeah, he's just yeah. acting so well." Right. So no one jumped in until it was almost too late. Wow. The clown scene is often listed on countdowns of the scariest moments in film. James Kahn, a writer who was writing the novelization of the film, says that as he was finishing the book, his building was struck by lightning. What? Which caused the casing off his AC unit to blow off, fly across the room, and hit him in the back. Wow. While the lights flickered on and off and some of his video games started playing themselves. Oh my god, that's scary. Which, I mean, that sounds impressive, but remember in 1982, the only video games were like Pong. Yeah, but for real though, Pong is scary. <laughs> <laughs> Those graphics are frightening. So like, if your TV is like, you know, your shit, your TV got hit by lightning or whatever, and then it starts just going like, boom, boom, boom. Like, that's, <laughs> that's scary. You know, that doesn't sound that's that crazy to me. I want to see Ocarina of Christ come up. <laughs> In the sequel, 1986, 1986's Poltergeist 2, The Other Side, an actor named Will Sampson played an important role as a Native American shaman who tries to help the Freelings. You guys know Will. He's that huge Native American dude from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So Will was actually a shaman in real life. And he felt like something evil was on the set. Mm. So at one point, they delayed production so that Will could perform a Muscogee Creek cleansing ceremony to rid the set of whatever evil was present. And I'm totally a skeptic. I don't believe in anything supernatural or anything like that. But if a real life Native American shaman was like, yo, there's something evil here. We've got to get it out. I'd be like, how many of pounds of sage do you want me to buy? Seriously. <laughs> anyway. One year after completing his work on Poltergeist, Will died of kidney failure at age 53. Oh, hell no. He had scleroderma, which is an autoimmune disease that affects the organs. So he had to get a heart and lung transplant and died shortly thereafter of post-operative kidney failure. Oh, wow. So RIP to Will. RIP. In that movie, Will's character tries to save the Freelings from an evil ghost named Reverend Kane. Kane is played by an actor named Julian Beck. Julian had a really interesting life. He was an actor, poet, stage director, founder of a theater company, and an anarchist. Oh, <laughs> shit. That's not... I wasn't expecting that to be the last like grandpa. <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah, fuck. He was constantly getting arrested for shit on apparently three different continents. He and his wife, Judith Molina, who was the co-founder of their theater company, The Living Theater, which sounds awesome. It is the oldest experimental theater group in the United States. 
Wow. They were founded in 1947, and they only did radical and controversial plays all around the world, sometimes performing in streets or prisons. Oh, shit. (laughs) This blew people's minds, as you can imagine, in like the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Anyway, he and his wife Judith had an open marriage, and at one point were in a long-term throuple with this beefy shipyard worker named Lester Schwartz. (laughs) Lester is a fucking beefy name, (laughs) too. It is, right? Yeah, I like that. Jewish beef. That's very appropriate. (laughs) So <laughs> Lester was also the third husband of one of Andy Warhol's homies named Dorothy Podber. And Dorothy has nothing to do with the curse, but I want to say a couple things that I learned about her here that are awesome. Okay. She was instrumental in running the Nonagon Gallery in the 50s and 60s, which was the super progressive gallery that was one of the first to showcase a young Yoko Ono and other young artists. In 1964, she was visiting the factory with photographer Billy Name and Andy Warhol was there working on a series of five Marilyn Monroe paintings and had four of them stacked against a wall. She asked Andy if she could shoot them, and he was like, cool, knock yourself out, thinking that she was going to photograph them. But she busts out a revolver and put a <laughs> bullet through the stack of four paintings and then just left. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Andy then banned her for life from the factory, but the paintings became known as the shot Marilyn's and are obviously among the rarest Warhol pieces. Of course. (laughs) I had to look up if this was before or after Andy had been shot, and thankfully it was before because I was thinking... Oh, actually, yeah, that would have been really in bad taste. I was thinking, like, what a dick move. Like, someone was very nearly assassinated. You're gonna bust out a fucking gun and shoot it around them, but it it actually happened a few years before. Last thing I want to say about Dorothy was that she had a lover who was a banker. Ooh. And she would only have sex with him on a bed of cash on the floor of his firm's vault. Wow. <laughs> that sounds like uh, Wolf of Wall Street. Yes, shit. right? Yeah. So shout out to Dorothy. <laughs> okay, but back to the curse. <laughs> <laughs> but we digress. The homie Julian, a.k.a. Reverend Kane, died at age 60 right after he finished shooting Poltergeist before it even came out. He had stomach cancer, and in the movie, he actually looks, like, really frail and unwell. So, R.I.P. to Julian. So, now we've got two deaths so far. Mm-hmm. Lou Perryman, who had a very small part in Poltergeist 1. He played a construction worker, but he was a character actor who was in a bunch of stuff, like Boys Don't Cry, uh, Blues Brothers, and a few other things. Oh, wow. Ten years ago, in 2009, 67-year-old Lou was at his home in Austin, Texas, when there was a knock on the door. His neighbors say that they had seen a man, later determined to be Seth Christopher Tatum, walk up to the door and knock on it. They saw the two men talk for a little bit, then Lou invited Seth inside, and later, Seth left alone. Seth took Lou's car, and a couple days later, I'm not sure if he turned himself in or if he was pulled over, but the reports say he told the cops, this car is stolen and I might have killed the guy it belongs to. Oh, shit. When the police later entered the house, they found Lou hacked to death with an axe. What? Yeah. Holy shit. Were they on drugs? So, it turns out that Seth had recently been released from prison and had gone off of his meds and started drinking. fuck. He wandered the streets for miles until he picked this random house to go up to and killed Lou. (gasps) Oh! So completely That's fucking scary. random, random, senseless act of violence. And Lou was literally killed by an axe murderer. It's so fucking wow. scary. Anyway, RIP to Lou. RIP. Okay. So Heather 
O'Rourke, our tiny little baby who played Carol Ann. She's the only main actor to appear in all three original Poltergeist films. Zelda Rubenstein, homegirl that talks shit on Toby. She's in all three, but she's a supporting character. Anyway, so Heather was born on December 27th, 1975. Her older sister Tammy was also an actress. So when Tammy was was filming a small role for a project on the MGM lot, Heather and her mom were having lunch at the commissary where Heather was spotted by Steven Spielberg. Spielberg had been looking for someone to play Carol Ann in the film and was just about to offer it to Drew Barrymore since he'd been working with her on E.T. And it was clear that she was going to be the breakout since she was just so freaking cute. But as soon as he saw Heather, he stopped in his tracks and offered her the role right then and there. And wow. Heather and her mom signed the papers the next day. That's crazy. That's so nuts. It's That's like, uh, what's her face in the diner? I want to say Grace Kelly, Lana but Turner. it's not Grace Kelly. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's also like I it's it's a sweet story and all, but it's also very weird for like an adult man to take notice of a little girl. Sort of. I don't know. Yeah, for sure. But it's Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. And the way he describes her, too, I think is a little creepy. Like <laughs> he's like, I was looking for I think he said something. He used a word. I want to look up a picture of her, but I don't want to look at a picture <laughs> of her. She scares me. He looked he, he said she was like he was looking for a beautiful beatific child or something and he knew it when he saw her i was like okay oh that is (laughs) it seems like heather really had spielberg wrapped around her finger he was super protective of her when she became scared of certain scenes that they were shooting he halted production to bring in a stunt double for her and as i mentioned earlier she had the line of the film with her iconic reading of they're here And after the movie popped off in the summer of 82, of course, the offers started rolling in for little Heather, perhaps most notably on the show Happy Days, where she played the young daughter of Fonzie's girlfriend who melted Fonzie's cool guy exterior. Aww. In 1986, she returned to the role of Carol Ann in Poltergeist 2, where she was tasked with calling back to her famous iconic line, but this time it would be, they're back. (laughs) That's kind of cheesy now. Yeah, it's real cheesy. And like yeah. they and they use it twice in the trailer. Like they use first they put their here and then they use their back. And it's like, okay, we get it. You know, come on. Yeah. So their back actually became the tagline of the second film. It's like it's on the poster and shit. Oh, wow. <laughs> Meanwhile, the money that Heather was making allowed her family to move out of the trailer park in Anaheim where they were living and into a larger home in Big Bear, California where Heather went to school in between shoots. She was even elected president of her fifth grade class at Big Bear Elementary. That's kind of weird. Why? To grow up in Big Bear? I don't know. I think it's cool. Yeah. Actually, somebody at my office uh, lived in Big Bear, like, while she was pregnant and, like, during the... She said up until her kid was, like, four. Mm -hmm. I remember having to go up there to, like, play a volleyball game or something, and thinking like the school was nice yeah i'm sure but it was like there weren't that many kids you know no, it's <laughs> tiny yeah anyway in early 1987 the 11-year-old caught a parasite uh oh giardiasis so she had all the typical symptoms that go along with a parasitic infection think vomiting abdominal pain diarrhea during the course of her treatment for the parasite she was also diagnosed as having crohn's disease which is a kind of inflammatory bowel disease. 
Crohn's is a lifelong chronic condition that includes a variety of symptoms and complications, including abdominal pain, diarrhea, fecal incontinence, depression, and like the list goes on. Although for a lot of people, the disease can mostly be controlled, if not even be put into remission with medication or surgery. For a lot of people, it can really affect their lives if they have a particularly stubborn case of Crohn's. So if you're Heather or mostly her mom, because Heather might be too young to really get it, you're like, well, you know, thank goodness she's okay, but she's going to have to like learn to control this and deal with it for the rest of her life, you know? Yeah. It's like, um, it, it, like imagine if your child got diagnosed with like diabetes or something. Right. Where you're like, oh, thank God. Like, like this sucks, but it could be worse. Of course. Yeah. And you just worry. You're like, all right, well, thank goodness she's okay. As part of her treatment, Heather was given steroids and she was taking them while she worked on Poltergeist 3 in 1987. The cast and crew of this movie noticed that Heather was sickly and struggling on the set, but she was doing her best to be professional and power through the long days. Wow. She's like 11? Yeah. That's intense. Yeah. What a little... Champ. Yeah. She was bloated from all the steroids and she was exhausted all the time. So everyone on the set did their best to try to make sure that she was accommodated as best as they could. Like they had shortened days. They made sure that she had plenty of breaks and stuff because you could Aww. you could just tell that she wasn't she wasn't herself, especially because some of these people had worked with her for like a couple movies already, you know. So, right. You know how she regularly is. And now you see her now and you're like, oh, yeah. Shortly after the movie wrapped, Heather turned 12 in December. On January 31st, 1988, she started vomiting in the evening and complaining of stomach pain. So, so her mom slept next to her and did her best to make sure that she got some rest and stayed hydrated with Gatorade. But by the next morning, Heather was still feeling sick. So her mom decided it'd be best to take her to the hospital, given that she has Crohn's, you know? So she was like, let's just be safe and take her in. Yeah, she's so little. Mm-hmm. So she sent Heather into her room to get dressed. And she said that less than one minute later, she heard, oh, mom. And she heard Heather fall. (gasps) No, this is so so fucking sad. Okay, so she rushed into the room to find Heather collapsed on the floor. And she said that like her fingertips were turning blue. So she she called 911 and the paramedics came and she said that like the paramedics were like okay Heather honey like we're gonna put oxygen on you and she's like I I don't need the oxygen I don't feel that bad like let's just go or whatever and then they were like no honey we need to put the oxygen on you okay so they put the oxygen on her and like they have her on the gurney and they're wheeling her outside of the house and she like throws up right as like right as they exit the house and she was like okay I really don't feel good oh no so like they put her in the ambulance and heather's mom kept telling her that she loved her and heather like finally was able to respond and she said i love you too mom and shortly thereafter she lost consciousness (gasps) oh my god no me then she went into cardiac arrest wow upon arrival to the nearest hospital the doctors were able to revive and stabilize her but decided that she needed to be airlifted to Children's Hospital where the facilities would be better equipped to care for her. So she gets to Children's Hospital and they realize that she has a bowel obstruction. Oh, fuck. So they tell her mom, we need to rush her into surgery, but just so you know, you need to prepare for the worst because her pupils are fixed and dilated. So even if we repair the bowel obstruction, she might have suffered irreparable brain damage when she went into cardiac <sighs> arrest. 
Oh my God. Could you imagine this woman? Oh my no. God. Like, what are you thinking at that point? She said that she had just thought because Heather had the Crohn's disease, like if she eats something that's a little bit off, you know, she's a little, she has a tummy ache, you know? Right, right. So she said, like, it's fucking crazy that you go to sleep thinking your kid has a tummy ache and then like, yeah. you have Wake the doctors. Up and it's this. Yeah, you have the doctors telling, telling you it's, it's bad, you know? And it could be brain damage, like, oh God. Yeah. So they rush Heather into surgery and almost as soon as they open her up, she goes into cardiac rest, arrest again. And the doctors frantically tried to save her for like a couple of hours, but that was it. She died on the table. Oh. Dur she was 12, She was right? 12, yeah. During the autopsy, it was noted that her intestines had ruptured due to the obstruction. And that led her to become septic. And, oh. and the subsequent infection and septic shock is what led to the heart failure. Oh my God, that's so crazy. It's fucking like, she's so ugh, little. I can't believe this happened to her. I know. She was buried a few days later at Westwood Village Memorial Park Cemetery. Her mother later sued Kaiser Foundation for misdiagnosing Heather with Crohn's, with Crohn's disease when the bowel obstruction should have and could have been noticed on several occasions instead of rushing to the Crohn's diagnosis. Right. So it's like if they would have just done an x-ray, they would have seen it. Right. But they were just like, oh, no, she, whatever. She has Crohn's. Like, oh, she has chronic stomach problems. She has Crohn's. Like, and that was it. And even though she had to go back to the doctor several times to, like, confirm the diagnosis and get the steroids and all this, like, nobody caught it. So uh, the bowel obstruction would have been treated rel with a relatively simple surgery, which ultimately would have prevented her death. The suit went into arbitration and was ultimately settled for an undisclosed amount. Wow. Poltergeist 3 was also left in kind of a shitty situation because now the studio was kind of like, fuck, if we like put out and promote this movie, people are going to think that we're capitalizing on the death of this child. But Heather's mom kind of told them that she understood that they, you know, they, they had to do what they had to do. So Heather was still all over the trailer and stuff. But they purposely didn't do a whole lot of promotion for the film so as not to have to answer questions about Heather's death. Wow. And they dedicated the film to Heather's memory. Wow. i never seen any of the other two. No, neither have I. I've only seen the first one. I think the second one, the second one still has like most of the cast. And so I mm -hmm. think that one has like okay reviews. This third one, like it ended up like being trashed by the critics and it barely made any money. So... Wow. And now there's a new one with like Sam Rockwell yeah, or like some shit. Yeah, there's like one in 2015. Yeah. yeah. I haven't seen that one. I haven't either. Anyway, R.I.P. Heather. R.I.P. That was really sad. So sad. Like also a preventable so death. Little. Like Yeah. And I keep thinking about her working on the set just like being a little trooper, you know? Yeah. That's crazy. All right. Finally, let's talk about Dominique Dunn. Oh, no. <laughs> Dominique was born on November 23rd, 1959 in Santa Monica to Lenny and Dominic Dunn. Hell yeah. You guys probably know Dominic Dunn as a writer and frequent contributor contributor to Vanity Fair. Yup. <laughs> Shout out to Dominic Dunn. Yup. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> RIP to him too. Yeah. I also like the naming your daughter after the father. Yes. It's so it's cute. so dope. Yeah. And also the they have another kid, Griffin griffin dunn who's named oh. that's um that's lenny her mom's uh, maiden name that's dope so i thought that was pretty cool 
Yeah. Anyway, so Dominic, he's come up in the podcast before because he wrote an amazing story for Vanity Fair on Sonny and Klaus von Bülow. Yeah. Which was great because he was fancy as fuck. So he ran in their circles and had all the tea. Yeah. I reread his March 1984 Vanity Fair piece about his daughter, Dominique, called Justice. Oh, it's so good. It's amazing. So yeah, that one I can highly recommend if you guys are into that sort of thing. Like, yeah, go go read that one. Okay, so Dominique grows up very privileged. Her dad is this famous writer with Hollywood connections. He's produced like some movies and plays and shit. And her mom is a ranching heiress. They divorced when she was seven, but it seems like they still loved and respected each other a lot. And like they did their best to give Dominique and her brothers, Alex and Griffin, like the best life that they possibly could. So our girl Dominique goes to all the best schools. She takes a gap year after high school and learns Italian in Florence. She takes acting lessons at very prestigious institutions and she appears in a handful of stage productions. By 1979, the 19-year-old starts appearing all over TV in a string of guest spots and roles on the Mary Tyler Moore Show spinoff, Lou Grant, Heart to Heart with Robert Wagner, and Fame. So things get off to a really great start. Griffin had a really great line where he was like, one day Dominique woke up and she was like, I'm going to be an actress. And, mm-hmm. and it's like five minutes later, she was like on the back lot making movies. So he, <laughs> he was like, he's an actor too and a director and he was like real proud of her. And also she was the baby because, well, she was the only girl and the, they had also had two other girls that died as infants, like shortly after surgery. I mean, shortly after birth. So of course, like when that happens, like everybody sort of like rallies around. Right. The baby that makes it, you know, so. Right. All right. Then in 1981 at 21, she gets cast in her first feature film, Poltergeist. Around the same time that she got cast in the movie, she meets a young sous chef at Ma Maison in West Hollywood, famous for launching the career of Wolfgang Puck just a few years before. Dominique and John hit it off right away and moved in together just a few weeks after dating. It's too quick. You don't know somebody. No. And you're too. I mean, you don't think you're young at that age, but you are super young, especially her coming from such privilege. Yeah. You know, but I'm sure she yeah. was like overprotected by her of parents course. and shit. Yeah. But John quickly became very physically abusive, usually stemming from jealousy and possessiveness on his part. So their relationship was rough to say the least. As we know, Poltergeist went on to be a huge hit the following summer. So now Dominique is a young starlet who is just in a huge summer hit and she's getting more acting offers left and right. She shoots a couple more TV parts while her life with John gets more complicated. She took John to New York to meet her dad and two brothers. And Dominic and Griffin didn't think much about him, like one way or another. But Alex had immediately said that he was scared of him because he caught a glimpse of a strange incident. When they were at dinner, John stepped away. And in the meantime, a fan recognized Dominique from Poltergeist So he went up to her and started doing one of her lines from the movie, which was, it's happening, it's happening. And like, he started doing it over and over. And Dominique was like getting a real kick out of it. She was like, yeah, you know, she's being recognized like for the first time. Right. And she was just like, she was loving it. And everyone was laughing. And when John came back, he literally picked up the fan and started yelling and shaking him in a jealous rage. 
Oh, my God. So Alex was like, fuck that guy. That guy's crazy. Like he told he told Dominique, like, you need to get away from that dude. He told his dad, like, I don't like this guy. And, yeah. And he was like the only one who had expressed it. In late August, during an episode in which John pulled out handfuls of Dominique's hair, she ran away to her mom Lenny's house. John showed up later and started banging on all the doors and windows until Lenny threatened to call the cops. So he left, but a few days later, Dominique moved back in with him. Exactly one month later, on September 26, John viciously attacked Dominique again. He grabbed her by the throat, threw her on the floor, and started to strangle her. Jesus. This is like scary, like so scary. The way it's escalating and shit? Yeah, it's just, I don't know, I just feel so bad because so many women get... Are in these relationships like as we speak, right? You know? And they don't know what to what to do, you know. And it happens like we won't even like it behind closed doors. So right. Ugh. So he's strangling her, and they had luckily they had a house guest at the time, and they're, they're which is crazy because this I is know. what's happening when there's fucking somebody there. Anyway, so their house guest ran out to see what was going on because you know they heard the commotion. And John was like, it's nothing. Dominique's fine. She's going to bed. You're going to bed, right, Dominique? And, oh. And, like, Dominique was like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going to bed. So she, instead of going into her bedroom, she goes into her bathroom, and she escapes out of the bathroom window. So, but John hears her car start, so he runs out and jumps on the hood of the car. Jesus. Somehow she gets him off the car, and she speeds away. So she stayed with friends and with her mom and she finally broke up with John and changed the locks at her house so that she could go back home. When she told her dad the news, she said, quote, he's not in love with me, dad. He's obsessed with me. It's driving me crazy. Oh, my God. On October 30th, 1982. This is going to be crazy because it would have been the day before that yeah. it, this comes out, you know? Yeah. Okay. On October 30th, 1982, Dominique was at home with her co-worker, David Packer, and they were rehearsing for the miniseries V, in which Dominique had just gotten a part. John showed up and begged her to let him in. She refused, but said she'd talk to him out on the porch. Meanwhile, David is still in the house. David says that he heard an argument, what sounded like smacking sounds, two screams, and then a thud. So David is freaking out. Yeah. He, I can't imagine being him. Like, and uh, you wonder, like, does he know the whole story, you know, right before this? So, yeah. like, does he even know that it's dangerous? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Oh, so, so he's freaking out and he, he calls the cops, but the cops tell him that her house is outside of their jurisdiction. Oh. And they just like leave it at that. They're not like, we'll call somebody else for you or something like that. They're just like, sorry. Yeah. And so David is like, like, what the fuck? Now he's like really freaking out because he's like, what do I, you know, what do I do? Yeah. So he calls a friend and he tells his friend that if he's found dead, that John Sweeney did it. Wow. So David goes out the back door and as he's passing the front of the house, he sees John kneeling over Dominique's body. And David tells John to call the cops. Oh, my God. So John goes out, goes inside and he calls the cops. And when the cops finally get there, I, not outside of their jurisdiction now, right? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> anyway, when the cops finally get there, John says, quote, I killed my girlfriend and I tried to kill myself. 
He claimed that he'd run inside and took a bunch of pills after he realized what he did, but that turned out to be a lie. There was no evidence of any pills in his body. He wasn't like um, inebriated or anything like that. And, right. and there were no pills in the house. So he's a fucking liar. John later testified that he blacked out and only remembers coming to when his hands were around her throat. Jesus. Dominic had survived the strangling and was taken to Cedar sinai where she was put on life support. And Dominic, Griffin, and Alex all rushed to L.A. from New York. When Dominic got the call from Lenny that Dominique was in the hospital in grave condition, he asked what happened, and Lenny responded just one word, Sweeney. Mm. That must have sent, like, chills. chills. Yeah. A few days later, when scans revealed that Dominique had no brain activity, she was taken off life support and died the same day on November 4th, 1983. Wow. She was later laid to rest at Westwood Village Memorial Park Cemetery next to family friend Natalie Wood. Wow. And where her on-screen little sister, Heather O'Rourke, would be buried just five years later. Two weeks after her death, Hill Street Blues aired an episode in which Dominique had guest starred and dedicated it to her. In the episode filmed a few weeks earlier on September 27th, Dominique played an abused teen and the bruises she displayed on screen actually weren't makeup. They they were from the time John assaulted and strangled her just one day before on September 26th. Oh my God. Yeah, that's fucking crazy. And actually, when she ran away from him that time, she one of her friends had the presence of mind to photograph her. And so they photographed like the bruises and stuff. And later in the trial, they showed the photographs. But like the um, the defense tried to spin it because in one of the photos, she's laughing. And the friend that took the picture said that, like, you know, she had obviously been in distress. But when. They told her, like, oh, shit, tomorrow you're not even going to need makeup. Like, she just, like, laughed. Like, she just blurted out laughing because it was, like, so ridiculous. You like, know? what the fuck are you supposed to do, though? Right. So, mm. I want to direct everyone back to Dominic's Vanity Fair story about what it was like to see his only daughter in the ICU with machines mm-hmm. breathing for her. Her head shaved because they had to insert a bolt into her skull to relieve the pressure Jesus. on her brain the massive bruises and swelling on her neck and how Dominique's mom, Lenny, who had an increasingly severe case of multiple sclerosis and was confined to a wheelchair, had to somehow summon the strength to keep it all together to see Dominique in that state. The whole scene is really heartbreaking. And like you said, it made me really think of all the victims of domestic violence that we don't hear about. Right. Or people who aren't believed or just like ignored. Seriously. I can't recommend what a nightmare to have to be living. Right. And, it, and now it's not just her, you know, now it's like her right. whole family. It's her sick mother. Yeah. Yeah. It's fucking horrible. So I can't recommend the article enough. Be prepared to cry if you're the sensitive type. <laughs> <laughs> a day after her assault, Patrick Terrell, the owner of Mameson, gave an interview to the L.A. Times in which he described John as a, quote, very dependable young man. And said that he was going to get him the best defense possible. Jesus. He never mentioned Dominique or the Dunn family, which he actually knew them. He was like friends of the family. And he never privately offered condolences. Dominic talks. What a fucking scoundrel. What a piece of shit. Like, why would you go out of your way to. Because you're fucking evil. Yeah, probably. Anyway, so Dominic talks about how when there is a murder, you 
can't begin to mourn immediately after the death as you would in say like a car accident when it's like it's over okay like time to mourn he's like you still have to go through a trial right and since john was charged with first degree murder and pleaded not guilty it's this was gonna it's like a full-blown trial yeah it was gonna drag on and this trial woo child this one was this one's one for the history books first of all the defense attorney mike adelson was a real piece of work he would purposely greet dominic in the courtroom as mr sweeney trying to make it seem like he was confusing him for the father of the killer instead of the father of the victim oh my god Dominic suspected that he was trying to get a rise out of him so that he would like have an outburst in court to make him seem less sympathetic. Judge Burton Katz, very aware that the trial had a lot of media and public eyes on it, treated it like a play in which he was the star. Oh, my God. He would enter the courtroom and tell the jury about his weekend trips to Ensenada and tell them about how he wished he could have that each and every one of them could have joined him on his little vacations what the fuck he would wear like different color shades to in the courtroom like the judge the judge yeah that's crazy and he asked that you know there's media there and he like at one point he pulled a photographer from people magazine to the chain to his chambers and dominic says that he thought that he was going to ask him to stop photographing during the trial but when the photographer came out he told dominic that he was asking him which of the glasses looked better in the photographs oh my god yeah it was a whole thing during the seven-week trial, Judge Katz spent the whole time calling Dominique Dominic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he would let randos, media, observers, bailiffs, and lawyers who had nothing to do with the case come in and chit-chat in the courtroom, which was very distracting. One day, Judge Katz called a recess because John had requested time to cry in private because other prisoners had been harassing him. What? John would also cry while clutching a Bible throughout the whole trial. Adelson then requested that Judge Katz bar Lenny from testifying on the grounds that her wheelchair would prejudice the jury and make her appear too sympathetic. What the fuck? It's fucking reality. Right. Did they what what did they want her to do? Like, yeah, walk. Walk. Walk to the yeah. ugh. anyway. So Judge Katz scheduled a little hearing about it for the next day following the testimony of John's ex-girlfriend Lillian. So the next day, Lillian comes to testify. The jury was not present because Adelson argued that her testimony might not be admissible. Anyway, Lillian testified that during their two-year relationship, John beat her no less than 10 times, put her in the hospital twice for a total of 10 days with various injuries, including a broken nose, punctured eardrum, and a collapsed (gasps) lung. Oh, my God. He'd thrown rocks at her when she tried to escape. And she wasn't also like she's the only one that testified, but she wasn't the only girlfriend who had this experience. Right. But uh, they had at least like three other victims that they knew of that had experienced violence from John. All of this established a pattern of abuse, which the defense was trying to argue that John had uh, just lost control that one time and that it was a tragic mistake. They kept repeating that, that this isn't a crime. This is a tragic mistake. So in cross-examination, Adelson tried to put the blame on Lillian and kept asking her if she'd been drunk or high at the time of her injuries. But Lillian stuck to her guns and just kept telling her story, which caused John to literally jump from his seat and make a run for the door. What? 
The alarms in the courtroom all went off and bailiffs and guards showed up and tackled John to the floor and he was handcuffed to his chair. Wow. John started crying and Judge Katz said, quote, we know what a strain you're under, Mr. Sweeney. <laughs> oh, really? He's the one that's under strain? Yeah. That that you would not imagine how angry that made me like I tensed up as soon as I read that. I'm like, how fucking dare you? Why are you putting so much consideration? He let him go cry. He put the trial on pause to let him go cry by himself. Now he's like worried about his feelings. (sighs) That same day, Judge Katz issued a gag order to prevent any players in the trial from speaking to the press. Remember that the jury wasn't present for any of this. Right. Dominic says that he thought that following that day, John looked as if he'd been sedated, like to prevent most likely any more outbursts in front of the jury. Right. The DA agreed and asked Judge Katz for a drug test, but the judge denied the request. Lenny gave her testimony about the day that Dominique escaped to her house after being beaten and having her hair pulled out. She gave her testimony without the jury present, again, so that Judge Katz could determine its admissibility later, which he later determined to be hearsay, and also ruled that Lillian's testimony had to be thrown out because the, quote, prejudicial effect outweighed the probative value because a pattern of violence and abuse of women did not mean that he intended to kill Dominique. Also, Dominique had been telling anyone who would listen during the last five weeks of her life, her friends, her agents, her co-workers, that she feared that John was going to kill her. Mm. Judge Katz ruled any testimony from these individuals inadmissible as they were considered hearsay. The judge admonished the Dunn family for having tears in their eyes during open court because Adelson said that they were trying to influence the jury. Adelson then argued that the jury only be allowed to consider a charge of manslaughter and second-degree murder instead of first-degree, and Judge Katz agreed. Wow. The argument being that there was no premeditation, although the evidence showed that it would take up to six minutes of strangulation for someone to be injured to the degree in which Dominique was. And six minutes is a long fucking time. Hell yeah. Start counting. The DA actually did that in open court. He started, he started counting. He started counting. So yeah, she, because like people, I think people don't realize how long that right. is. It's certainly enough time to make your mind up mm-hmm. about what you want to do and what you're going to do. Yeah. And also the first cop on the scene testified that John was like, I really dropped the ball this time. Like I really <sighs> killed her this time. So like, all right. So what you tried, what do you mean this time? Cause he has yeah. strangled her before, you yeah. know? John took the stand and, of course, claimed that he didn't remember the incident, but only knows that they were arguing because Dominique had promised to get back together with him and was now refusing. So Adelson was trying to paint her as, like, like she lied, and, like, that's why he got upset, and that's why she's dead. So it's, like, her fault. (laughs) The jury deliberated for about a week. The day the verdict came in, observers in the court present for a different case Judge Katz was presiding over that morning, saw Judge Katz sentence a man who non-violently, nonviolently robbed a flower shop to five years in prison. The jury found John guilty of a lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter, wow. which carried with it a maximum sentence of six and a half years with an automatic parole. Automatic parole. He didn't even have to go in front of the board or anything. Right. He would automatically be paroled after two and a half years on good behavior wow 
that's too little i think six it's w- six and a half way is too, too little. little yeah yeah and he gets he gets less right mm-hmm. yeah yeah or well no he gets a six and a half oh, he but, did, it's like, but he only does it's, like three he, the two he, he does the two and a half with the good behavior that's fucking ridiculous so dominic was saying like the jury it there's rarely a jury where everyone's like yep like he did it given the maximum he said usually there and you know he's a crime true crime writer so he like talks to a lot of juries right he says usually there's some sort of compromise right and when the judge took first degree off the table so now they're left to compromise on lesser charges right so he's like he understands like how they how something like this might have happened at least for the jury right right the judge thanked the jury for their role in giving justice for the dunn family and that was it it was over the media went crazy for weeks this was all anyone in the country could talk about and in particular judge katz was dragged on every tv station and newspaper and magazine at the sentencing a month later after everyone read the victim statements there was an unexpected twist judge katz proclaimed from the stand quote I will state on the record that I believe this is a murder. I believe that Sweeney is a murderer and not a manslaughterer. This is a this is a killing with malice. This man held on to this young, vulnerable, beautiful, warm human being that had everything to live for with his hands. He had to have known that she was failing to get oxygen, that the process of death was displacing the process of life. Whoa. <laughs> you knew of your capacity for uncontrolled violence. You knew you hurt Dominique badly with your own hands and that you nearly choked her into unconsciousness on September 26th. You were in a rage because your fragile ego could not accept the final rejection. And like he started sort of like chastising the jurors for their decision. That like how- is so <laughs> fucking wrong on so many levels. Like the number one thing as a judge is you have to be neutral. So even if, right. I mean, and I would be glad if a judge felt that way about this type of case, but you can't say that. Right. <laughs> That's, this is so crazy. It is like a fucking show for him. It, yeah. It's such bullshit. So he said he was appalled by the juror's decision. <laughs> what? <laughs> Over Sweeney's final. Oh, over Sweeney's attack and quote you tailored that decision though he sure did yeah and he stopped a lot of the evidence from being shown so well hearsay is hearsay and there's nothing he can do about that but the thing about the 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 old girlfriend you know that's not hearsay that happened to her and it establishes a pattern of behavior yeah I mean I don't know depending on how she says it yeah so he said, quote, the jury came back. I don't understand for the life of me <laughs> with simple assault, thus taking away the sentencing parameters that I might have on a felony assault. Wow. What a dick. So fuck, that so guy. He, fuck him. Yeah. And it's great because uh, Dominic says that he like would he kept tabs on him and was like sort of not harassing him but like following him around sort of for the rest of his career Good. he got de- he got demoted to like a lesser court and a lesser court Good. until he was finally demoted to like traffic court Good. and then he and then he had to retire yeah. out of there so he handed down what was essentially the two and a half year sentence and sent john to a minimum security prison in chino 
Several members of the jury went on record saying that if they had heard all the evidence, that a verdict of guilty of murder in the first degree would have been the easy and obvious choice. When John got out, he started working at a restaurant in Santa Monica where the Dunn family and friends and supporters of Dominique would go sit at every one of his shifts and tell the diners that their meal was being prepared by a murderer. That's crazy. He was subsequently forced to resign and moved away from Los Angeles. Several years later, Dominic Dunn was contacted by a man in Florida whose daughter had become engaged to a chef named John Sweeney. <gasps> and he wanted to know if it was the same man. It was. Wow. So Dominique's brother called the woman to convince her to get away from him. So John got all pissed and accused the Dunn's of harassment. And oh, changed okay. his name. <laughs> yeah. He changed his name to John Mora and moved to Seattle. The Dunn's kept tabs on him for nearly 20 years via a private detective until they finally decided that they just had to let him go yeah. for their own health. John continues to work in the restaurant industry in the Seattle area to this day. It's scary. So scary. And has not spoken publicly about the murder of Dominique. R.I.P. to Dominique. R.I.P. That's such a sad, tragic mm. story. And that's the story of the curse of the poltergeist. Ooh, that's so weird, right? That so that all of them in the movie would, yeah, die that way. The I think like the Dominique one is just so, especially because we have like such a good account of it from Dominic. Yeah, I think it's very like, um, it's it's very provocative and it it really it incites like feelings. But the one that really caught me off guard was the axe murderer. Yeah, that's fucking horrifying crazy yeah Ooh. well thank you guys for tuning in to our spooky episode Ooh. hope everyone has a good halloween nice and, and safe does, halloween does the monster match <laughs> hit us up on instagram and twitter at drama club pod and on the website drama club pod.com on the hotline 505-590-556 at our p.o box p.o box number 27433 laca 90027 Leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Buy a sticker. Leave us a tip on our website. And so we're taking a break next week. Uh, we got stuff going on. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll talk to you next Monday with a brand new Afternoon Delight episode. Bye. However, whatever with your helmet.